Um, I want to pray with us just before we get get started this morning. We're uh, continuing a sermon series called "The War on Love." Just been talking a lot about about love and how that plays out in our in our lives, and um, and specifically, we've been hanging out a lot in First Corinthians thirteen. So I'm going to try to finish that up today. Um, I want to pray before we get started here. I really feel like. Uh, you know what what the Lord was uh, sharing through for us there was a, was a really good word for us this morning and and uh, you know one of the things I'm really thankful for this morning is that I have you all and that we have each other. You ever feel that way about just being thankful for the fact that we got each other? It's a good thing to have people in our lives that we know love us and care for us because we go through some difficult situations and and we we need God and we have God, but God gives us each other too. It's a wonderful thing to have. And one of the things that I feel like the Lord is just wanting to say this morning is that he's wanting some people to just really come to that place like Forrest said where we can cast our anxiety upon him because he cares for us, he cares about us. And I think one of the things that, uh, that he wants to say is that everything that's going on in your life, no matter how difficult it may seem, or even whenever you're taking steps in your life that feel like, man, there could not be a good purpose to the step that I'm taking when we learn to follow God, when we learn to follow his spirit, there's nothing that you'll go through. There's no step that you're going to take that ultimately he's not going to use it for your good. You believe that? So let's, let's just pray before we get into this message and um, we'll turn to 1 Corinthians 13. But if you would, let's just pray. Let's just receive from the Lord this morning. Father, we thank you so much, God, for your love toward us. And Lord, th- this morning we're thankful for, for Jesus. We're thankful for the love that he shows us, God. And we're thankful, Lord, for, for one another. And Lord, you know the needs of every person in this, in this church this morning. And God, you love them so much. But uh, I pray that you would just begin to lift all anxiety. And that God, we would be able to cast all of our anxiety upon you. Knowing, Lord, that you're always working everything together for our good. And Lord, you've brought us out of the darkness and you've brought us into light. And God, even, even the difficult things that we've been through and the bad decisions we've made, God, you're able to redeem those things and make them beautiful again. You're able to bring beauty God, where there were ashes, God. And, and you're able to bring the oil of joy where there was mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. God, we thank you for your redemption that you make all things new and you bring good out of even the worst situations. So we trust you with our future. We trust you with our lives and with our families and with our health. And Holy Spirit, this morning, we pray, God, that you would do miracles in our lives, in our families, in our hearts, in every aspect of our life, God. I believe that every person in this room, Lord, it's your desire, God, to give them increase so that every, everything that their hand touches, Lord, it's going to prosper. And so we just release that blessing this morning. We receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to finish this sermon series and call this message, Love Never Ends. Uh, I want to read from, I just want to read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, and it'll feel like we're at a wedding, but, but, uh, but there's a, it's really not a wedding uh, passage, to be honest with you, um, even though you can use it for that. But I'm going to read all 13 verses in 1 Corinthians 13 from the ESV, and then we'll, we'll get into it. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It, it, is, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. So we've been talking a lot about love lately. I think this is our sixth message uh, in this particular series. And one of the things that we talked about was we defined what love really was. And we, we went through different ways of defining that. We talked about envy. We talked about pride. We talked about anger. We talked about all these different things that war on love. And we even talked about how in our culture, uh, how we define love is getting twisted a lot in our culture. Because a lot of times when our culture and our world system defines love, they define it from really a romantic, sensual, uh, sexual type of love. But this love is a, is a specific Greek word called agape, and it means self-sacrificial, self-giving love. And that kind of love, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is saying, when you have that kind of love, the love that only comes from Christ and is only fully revealed in Christ, he says, this is what that love looks like. It's not rude. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It, it, it endures all things. It keeps no record of wrongs. He starts to list the fruit of this love that, that is produced from our relationship with God. Now, here's something that you got to understand about this love is that this love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a work. It's not something that you can produce simply by hearing me say, hey, you need to go out and love people, quit envying, quit boasting, quit doing all this stuff. You cannot produce this kind of love in your own self-effort. Now, what you can do is learn to produce, uh, participate with the Holy Spirit, but that comes through your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because when I'm a, in a relationship with God and He is my source of life, my source of love, He fills me with His Spirit and all of a sudden I become a loving person. And I find that before long, I'm not envious, I'm not boasting, I'm not proud, I'm not easily angered, I'm none of these things. Why? Because I'm filled with the love of God. Now, what we have to understand is that we love, the scripture says in 1 John 4, 19, that we love because he first loved us. The only reason that love even flows through our lives in any regard is because we first received the love of God that he has for us. Now, a lot of times that's difficult for us as Christians because it's easy for us to fall into the, into the, the pitfall, if you will, of religion and, and just a religious system where we're trying to do good things, trying to be good people, and we don't have a relationship with God where we know how loved by God we are and we're receiving His love, and then all of a sudden we're trying to produce all these things out of self-effort and we become very self-righteous people. Amen? And so we, we have to understand that this love begins because He first loved us. Now, I love, one of the things that came to my mind this morning when I was just meditating on all this was, I, I love the story in, in Genesis 22 when Abraham is called and God is testing Abraham in Genesis 22. Now, in the Bible, the first mention of love is in Genesis 22. And God says to Abraham, he says, Abraham, I'm going to test you. He says, I want you to go and take your son, your only son, whom you love, 
and take him and offer him as, as a sacrifice on the mountain that I will show you. Now, what's interesting is he calls uh, Isaac Abraham's only son whom he loves. He's emphasizing the fact that he loves him. He's like, hey, go, go sacrifice your son whom you love. He's putting that on there for some reason. But what you got to understand about Abraham is, is that Isaac was not Abraham's only son. He had another son named Ishmael, but God is trying to point out that it, this is a type of Jesus Christ. This is a type of Jesus Christ. So Abraham is taking his son, and Isaac is, is really at this point probably a 30-year-old man. But by the time he takes him, he's going up this mountain, and he's going up Mount Moriah, and that is where Calvary was where Jesus would be crucified. And at the bottom of the mountain, he takes the wood and he puts it on Isaac's back the same way that Jesus would carry the cross up that same mountain. And as they begin climbing that mountain, he gets to the top and Abraham lifts the knife to sacrifice his son. And the angel says, no, stop, don't touch the boy. He says, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son whom you love. And what God is trying to say is, is that you can know that God loves you. Why? Because he did not withhold his son, his only, only son whom he loves. That's, that is the first picture, the first portrait, first mention of love in the Bible. And God is trying to say that when you define love, the only way you can truly define love in this world, the world God created, is when you look at God's love towards you and giving his only son whom he loves in your place, dying as a sacrifice for your sin. Somebody said, well, you know, I don't deserve to just be called righteous. I don't deserve to be holy and blameless in his sight. But guess what? Jesus was perfect, sinless, and spotless. He did not deserve to take your sin, but he took your sin and he carried the cross and died in your place. And he says, that's how you need to define love. That's the first definition of love. And he says, when you get into that spot, all of a sudden, see the first mention also of worship is in that same chapter, because when you see that love of God for you, what happens? True worship begins to overflow. I think in our generation, we love worship music, man. We love to listen to worship music. But I think a lot of times it just becomes about uh, th th this atmosphere and this song and this, th this type of thing. But true worship is not necessarily about a song. Songs are the medium through which we learn to worship. But you don't have to have a song to have worship. True worship overflows from a heart that knows that it is loved by God. And true worship overflows when they see that love revealed in the picture of God the Father giving His only Son on your behalf. And when you see that, man, love overflows. And then guess what? A song is birthed in your heart. You don't have to come in and have somebody else leading a song. you got one in your heart because you see the love of God the Father towards you in giving His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And see, number one in your notes, if you have them, is that we live from beloved identity. We live from beloved identity. A lot of us, we live and it's like, man, man, you got to love God. You got to try to love God more. You got to love God more. You got to love God more. And here's the thing. We do need to love God more, but I promise you, we can try and try and try to love God more and you will never be able to love him sufficiently until you are filled with his love for you. It's just the way that it works. You have to be filled. You are a vacuum, so to speak. You were designed to be filled with God's love. And when you're not, you're very empty. But see, we live from beloved identity. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, what you see is that Jesus Christ is baptized in water. And John the Baptist recognizes something. He recognizes that Jesus really didn't even need to be baptized. He said, you, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, well, let it, be, let it be so to fulfill all righteousness. And here's what he was saying. He's saying that Jesus himself knew that he needed to be baptized in order to sanctify the waters that we are baptized in. Because when we are baptized, we're not just baptized for our own sake, but we are baptized into Jesus Christ. 
He sanctified those waters so that when you went into those waters, you would enter into his life. And when he comes out of the waters, the heavens are opened and the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And all of a sudden there is a voice from the Father in heaven that says, this is my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. And the beautiful thing about the Christian life is, is that you can be a wretched, miserable sinner and put your faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized in water. And when you come out, no matter what you've done, the father says from heaven, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in you. I'm well pleased. He said, well, Lord, I ain't even done nothing yet. How are you going to love me like that? Don't I need to do something to earn this love? He's saying, no, that is your new identity. You are my beloved before you do anything. So you have to learn to live from that identity as God's beloved because otherwise you're going to run in a rat race trying to produce things, trying to make things happen, and you will never be satisfied because you don't yet know who you are. You don't yet know who you are. You'll never be satisfied. You'll be chasing everything in the world. See, God's original design is that he is the center of everything. He's the center of life. He's the center of love. He's the center of everything that our heart desires. And because he is love, he's constantly overflowing. Just like Forrest said, not only does he want to speak to you, he wants to pour out the fullness of his love at all times. But we live in a war zone and this world wars against love. And the one thing that the world does not want you to know is that you're loved by God. Even when we go to churches, churches are often contaminated by the world system. And so their preaching is often very judgmental, very harsh, and it does not teach people that they're loved by God. Matter of fact, we'll preach a lot of times and say, yeah, God is love, but I'm thinking, how are you going to butt that, man? He is love. There's nothing you can do about it. That's, that is his nature. That is his essence. And what it, what, basically what we're saying is God is love, but y'all are sinners and you need to get your act together. And my point is, is that you can harp on people all you want to, but that will not make them get their act together. What makes a person get their act together and makes their behavior change and makes them transform as people is when they enter into that communion with their heavenly father that was broken at the fall. And when you enter back into that communion, you enter back into that loving relationship, all of a sudden you don't want to sin anymore. There is a transformation that happens in your heart. But man, when you enter into that thing, it's bondage. To preach as if your father is angry at you, as if, he, as if he's ready to bring judgment upon you at any moment. And all of a sudden you enter into bondage because you, you're cut off from you. You have this, it's not, it's not a sonship anymore. It's a spirit of bondage, Paul said, again to fear. And he says you have to enter into this relationship where you know God's love for you. And if you, if you read in 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 15, let's read a few verses there. 1 John chapter 2, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, if you read this, this is kind of interesting because John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, right? They can't be talking about the same thing, can they? Now, it's the same word, but in one sense, you're talking about the world being all the people in the world. In this sense, you're talking about the world system with all of its goods, with its governments, with its desires, with its longings, with all those things. And he says, don't love the world, neither the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, here's what he's not saying. He is not saying, if anyone loves the world, they just don't love God. What he's saying is, if anybody loves the world, it's because the love of the Father is not in him. He's not yet realized the love of the Father for him, and he's not in that loving relationship. Because when you're not in a position where you're actively receiving the love of God, guess what? You become empty. 
And when you become empty because you're not receiving the love of the Father, what do you do? You chase after everything in this world, searching for the one thing you were designed for. And then the next verse, it lists the, 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 the categories of things. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. When you're not receiving the love of the Father, you look for love in sex. He says, the lust of the eyes, the things that we can attain and the pride of life, what we can become, our successes, our achievements. He says, when you don't receive the love of the father, you are like a vacuum. You're empty and you will pursue the things of the world. And he says, all of these things are not of the father, but they're of the world. Then the last verse in this in this section, it says, and the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. How do you do the will of God? First, you start where Jesus did. Jesus performed the perfect will of God. He was the perfect will of God. When you want to know what the will of God is, you look to Jesus. He is the will of God. How did he begin performing the perfect will of God? He began by realizing his identity in Christ. Now, what you have to pay attention to is as soon as he realizes this identity, he's not performed one miracle. He's not done anything, but he knows he's the beloved son of God. And he goes out into the wilderness and he is tempted by the devil for 40 days and tested and tried. And what does the devil do? The devil offers offers him three temptations and he offers him the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The three things that we just listed right there. He, he listed those things. And when he comes to him, though, his first temptation is really not those three things because his first temp- temptation opens with if you be the son of God. If he questions his identity, but the one word that he leaves off that God the father said to him is he leaves off beloved. Because the one way that Satan is going to tempt you is to first convince you that God is not, he does not love you and he's not really on your side. And when you begin to question God's love for you, all of a sudden it's a lot easier to offer you all sorts of different temptations. The one thing that broke addiction in my life and the one thing that broke sinful patterns of behavior and sinful habits was when I finally came to a revelation of how much God the Father loved me. And then every time I saw temptation in my face, I thought to myself, I cannot do that because I cannot lose this communion that I have with my Father. I cannot get out from under that love. And I'm afraid. And it's not that God would ever cease to love me, but there is in our relationship, God never ceases to love me, even if I make a mistake. But when I make a mistake, what happens is, is all of a sudden I I, I get into this place where I'm disconnected in my communion with the father and I feel like I'm not loved. Do you ever get in that place where you feel like you're not loved? You just feel that way. Why? Because you've been contaminated by this world system. You've been defiled by this world system. That's why holiness is important. Because when I have a pure in heart, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And when they see God, they're going to have, they're going to have this, this sense of his love for them. But see, what happens is, is we literally start to live from a false identity where we don't think that we're the beloved, where we don't think that God loves us. And out of that false identity, because we're not allowing God's love to flow through us, what happens? We begin to become envious. We begin to compete with others. We begin to get angry, easily irritated, because we're chasing after things and chasing after desires that ultimately only God can fulfill. And then all of a sudden it breaks down, love breaks down, and there's this war in our lives for this love. And what happens then when we get into this false identity and we move out from beloved identity is we become the center rather than God being the center. You remember in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life and there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree of life, they could eat from freely. But what happened was, is, 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 is Satan comes and tempts them and he says, you know, you, God's holding out on you. He really doesn't, he really doesn't, uh, 
want you to, to, to know what he knows. And he's holding out on you a little bit. And you can eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what, here's the thing. Is the tree of life represents us drinking from Jesus. Us receiving our identity, our life, our, our, who, everything that we are, our worth and our value from Jesus in relationship with him. And whenever all of a sudden we stop receiving our identity and our worth and our value from Jesus then a vacuum comes on the inside of us and we begin to not even listen to God's prohibition anymore and we start to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then what happens is rather than God being the center, guess what? We become the center. We become the center of all things and we become a vacuum and everything then exists to please us. Everything then exists to make us better and we, and we live in this life of competition trying to figure out how to make things work for us and in and, and, and 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it begins to list some of the things that happens. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, that love is not rude, it does not insist on its own way, and it is not irritable or resentful. Because when you are the center, you begin to demand your own way, don't you? Anybody amen me this morning? Y'all ever been the center? I've been the center. So every now and then I still get back into it. You know what I'm talking about? I move back into that center position, and I start demanding my own way. Because if I'm the center, man, then everything should work together the way that I want it to work together. And it should happen the way that I want it to happen. Why? Because I'm, I'm at the center, not God. And here's what happens. And num number two in your notes, and we'll, just, we'll go through this. It's really easy. It's, it's exactly what the scripture says. But number two is love is not rude. Love is, y'all know any rude people? You got no couple. But see, one of the strategies for meeting the emptiness that we have when we're not filled with God's love is we actually start to use people. Now, I want you to, I want you to just consider this because what happens is when we are empty, then I, you will actually start to, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, judge whether or not a person is going to be of value to you or not. You ever done that before? You ever judged whether or not, man, well, this person, I can get something out of them. I need to be in a relationship with them. I need to be in a friendship with them because guess what? I get something out of them. I can get something out of them. If I can get something out of them, then that'll be good. And guess what, man? You'll treat those people good. You'll pat those people on the back. But if you see somebody that maybe you disagree with, maybe you don't like that much, maybe they, in your eyes, don't seem to have much to offer. Well, guess what? You don't consider them. You don't consider their thoughts. You don't consider their opinions. You don't consider them at all. And matter of fact, they're just getting in your way from you getting what you want. So how do you treat them? Discourteously. And you treat them with a rude, in a rude manner. Because they're just, they don't agree with what you, what you like. They don't do things the way you, should, you would want them to do things. Somebody amen me this morning. See, we're empty. And when people don't line up with what we want, when they don't meet our needs, all of a sudden we're inconsiderate and we're rude. And we are, listen, we're rude when a person's concerns or thoughts or ideas or feelings or opinion, opinions don't matter to us. Because maybe they disagree with us. But what you have to understand is that love considers all others regardless of who they are and what they've done. And I, I was thinking about this because when I think about Christians on a large scale, the one thing that I think probably Christians are most notoriously rude in is evangelism. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like when we're, when we're trying to reach people who don't know Jesus and maybe who are of other religions or, or who don't believe the way that we believe, you know, like him daggone liberal Democrats. And... Is that rude? No, it ain't rude, dirt. Uh, you know, and then we go off on them. 
Listen, you can't expect everybody in the world to think and believe like you think and believe. Matter of fact, you need to remember the fact that you were once crazy yourself. You once believed some crazy stuff yourself. The only reason that you even, th- you even begin to line up your mind is because you've been saved by the Spirit of God, been born again, and you've been in the Word of God and your mind's been renewed. So how you win people is not by being rude to them. That's the weirdest thing about Christians that I've ever really understood is why they would, want to, why they would even begin to imagine that being rude is going to get somebody on the other side over on their side. It's an impossibility. Rudeness does not win and it is not love. See, when Paul, even when Paul was evangelizing in the New Testament, he would go to, to Athens and he would go to and, and preach and evangelize these places. But if you notice the way that he preached, even when they believed crazy stuff, he was never rude to them. Now, there were times when he was rude to the Pharisees because they were religious people that, that, that needed to be confronted. But people who did not know and were not like him, that he did not agree with him, he tried to find common ground with them. And he tried to show God to them and present God to them in love. Now, here's what I'm saying. We never compromise the truth. We never compromise what we believe. But the scripture calls us to speak truth in love. And sometimes you're going to come across people that you don't agree with, people that believe crazy stuff, people that say crazy stuff. And God still says that you do not be rude to this person. You are considerate of of this person's opinions, thoughts, and feelings. And you present the truth to them in love. And secondly, what you need to understand is that our main goal of Christians is not to change people's behavior. Our main goal as Christians is to point them to the life source, Jesus Christ. Because we know that if we can point people to the life source and they will come to Jesus and they will begin to drink, he will transform their lives. He will change their behavior. But if we try to do that up front, man, we may push people off before they even get a chance to come and meet Jesus or a chance to even come and see Jesus. And that was why Jesus uh, rebuked the Pharisees very often. So another thing is in, in this thing is you got to understand that when we, tr- we, we treat people a certain way, we have to treat them. If you treat a person with love, no matter who they are or what they've done, you believe that they are of un- unsurpassable worth and dignity before God because Jesus says that they're worth dying for, no matter who they are. But when we, when we are rude, we treat people as potential converts, as problems to be fixed, as opponents to be refuted, or an evil to be crushed. And when you start to treat human beings... Now, ideologies, that's a different thing. There are certain ideologies that are consuming people, and they're demonic ideologies in our nation. And we need to attack those spirits and those ideologies, but you don't attack people. Amen? You're not at war with people. You're to love people. You're to lovingly lead them into the truth. Now, the third thing is in your notes is that, and and it's in the scripture there in in 13.5, is that love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. So in Christ, we're full. Man, we're overflowing with love. But in Adam, the fallen nature, the part of us, we're empty and we live from an empty center. And it causes us to insist on and demand our own way because we become the center. Now, one of the things is, is that if I am live from an empty center and I'm insisting on my own way, y'all ever done that? You ever insisted on your own way? I want it my way. I want it this way. So it needs to happen this way. And when I start doing that, guess what happens? It makes me very irritable. And it, and it also makes me resentful. You know why? Because people are not going to do what you want them to do. You ever tried to control people? 
You ever try to get people to do what you want them to do? One, one, of, one of the best videos on YouTube is, is this video of this preacher, man. He's just going around going off on his congregation. You can probably look it up. You need to look at it later. It's hilarious. I get re- I'm really ministered to out of it. And I just, I imagined, I tried to get Donald to do it one Sunday. But this pastor, this pastor is preaching. And see, even as pastors, you can get, you can get irritable. You can get resentful. Why? Because when you start to insist on your own way, even as a spiritual leader, you find out that guess what? People ain't going to do what you want them to do. They ain't going to come to church when you want them to come to church. They're not necessarily going to do exactly. They're not going to enter into the programs you want them to enter into. And they won't go the way that you want them to go always. And guess what? If you don't have love, you can become irritable and you can even become resentful. And this pastor, man, he comes off the pulpit. He starts looking at people. He says, he's talking about a couple that he was wanting to marry. And he goes down to him. He says, you want me to marry you to her and you to, you to him? And you ain't worth 15 cents. You're the sorriest church members I got. I thought, man, that's a good preaching there, brother. Bring that, bring that on, amen? But do you, do you see how all of a sudden, even in the very place that we are supposed to be loving the most, we slip into a place where we demand and insist on our own way because somehow we think we're the sinner. Even Moses stands as an example, even though he was one of the greatest pastors, I would say, of the Old Testament. The very reason he could not enter into the promised land was because his people would not do what he wanted them to do when he wanted them to do it. And he got ticked off and threw a temper tantrum. And guess what? God said, you're not going to be able to enter into the promised land because you misrepresented who I am. And what you need to learn to do is you need to learn to lead by example. Never force, never coerce, never insist on your own way, but to lead by example and love unconditionally. And when people allow you into their lives, then you can bring them correction. And that correction is always out of love and never out of anger, never out of frustration, never out of irritation. But it's out of true, genuine, self-giving, self-sacrificial love for that person. So it's important that we spend less time trying to figure everything out and a lot more time demonstrating the non-judgmental love of Christ. But here's what happens too, you know, when we insist on our own way, and I've been a part of this, uh, but, but it, it, sometimes the lines get blurry when you're, when you're a Christian because you slip into a, a community we're supposed to be a community of overflowing love, but you can slip into being a community that is very religious where they get their life from the rightness of their beliefs, they get their life from the rightness of their behaviors, and then you become hypervigilant about it whenever people don't believe the way you believe, when people don't live the way you live, when they don't dress the way that you dress, and you get hypervigilant about those things. Why? Because you get life from your correct doctrine. And you get lot look, look there, there are people in this church that even when we begin, there are things, you know, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit and all the time people will come in and they don't believe in this or they don't believe in that. I'm not going to argue with you about those things because that's not what we get our life from. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but it is not the core of our identity. We believe in a lot of different things, but it's not the core of our identity. And it is sh- a shaky foundation to put your identity on your doctrines. Because guess what? We are going to interpret Scripture differently in the body of Christ. And if love cannot permeate and transcend all of our differences, then, man, we're going to have divisions, and that's what we do have in the church. Divisions all over the place, and people that, 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 that again, they, they, they become like religious parasites sucking life out of the people that they're supposed to actually be pouring love into. 
And that's what can happen as, as a religious group. When you're supposed to be a, a, a community of love, you become a community of religious idolaters. And you start to see, the other thing is you see this, you see this in the New Testament because the Pharisees, they, they wanted a standard drawn, man. They wanted a line drawn and say, these people are in, these people are out. You know what I'm saying? And they, they wanted that line drawn. And on the other hand, they, were, they didn't like Jesus because Jesus was inviting tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners to come and drink. And he was saying, well, man, this dude hangs out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and, and all these different things. And, 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 what you, and just like I said before, our job is not to draw lines. Our job is to point people to the source and to bring them to Jesus. And what happens then is in relationship with Jesus, when people enter into a covenant community, see, I'm preaching to you. And honestly, to the degree that you show up on Sundays is in my mind, the degree that you allow me permission to bring some correction into your life. And to the degree that you come into a small group and you come into relationship with me and you allow me into your life is the degree to which I see that, man, this person is giving me permission to come in and try to bring whatever into their life, to bring love, to bring correction. Because I will have people that will literally come to me and say and say that, man, I need help in this area. I need you to hold me accountable in this area. And in that, in that way, I can lovingly come alongside them and walk with them, but I will never stand from the outside and judge them when they are in a position doing things that I, might, I, that I would consider sinful. Now, I will, I will try to witness to that person about Jesus, but I will not stand outside of them and rail against what they are doing. You understand what I'm saying? It's a, it's a very different thing. Now, we, again, we preach the word boldly. We preach it without compromise. And some Sundays you're going to come in here and we're going to preach it. And guess what? You're going to get exposed because there's going to be things in your life that we preach from the word of God that actually says that if you do these things, man, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. And that's, you know, sometimes it's a rough day for people, but if people really see the life in it, it's the best day. <laughs> it's the very best day. One of the best things that can happen in your life is you see you see the light and the truth of God's word coming to correct who you are because if it comes to correct who you are, it comes only to bring life. It comes only to bring you into alignment with love. And see, the Pharisees wanted people to live by rules and Jesus wanted people to live in genuine relationship. And he says the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love your neighbor. And when you're walking in that, man, you start to fulfill the whole requirement of the law. You have to beat people down with the law because when you enter into love, then you start to fulfill the law naturally. Now, here's my last point, number four, is that love never ends. Love never ends. I want want to read some of these verses again, verses 8 through 13. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now this is a very interesting passage of scripture because one of the things like I was talking about with spiritual gifts that we get into a lot is people will bring these scriptures to me and they'll say, well, what about that? You know, this clearly says that the gifts have ceased and all that. And and there's actually, there's a group of teaching and there's a a particular seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, man, they're into something called dispensational theology. And here's what they believe and here's what they say that says. 
They believe that when the perfect comes, that all of the gifts of the Spirit will pass away. And they, they believe that the perfect was the Bible. Now, the only problem with that is that Paul never says that the perfect is the Bible. Matter of fact, he didn't even know at that point they, they didn't have a Bible. The Bible wasn't actually brought into a configuration to quite a bit on down the road. And, and, and there's a lot of discrepancy there. But there's nothing in the Bible that says or in Scripture that says that the Bible would be the perfect. Matter of fact, most Scriptures reveal that the, per the perfect is actually a word in the Greek called the telos. It means the end goal. The end goal that we're all headed toward. And in Scripture and throughout Scripture, that end goal is actually when we see Christ face to face and He makes all things new and we become like Him because we see Him as He perfectly is. And right now, guess what? We only see in part and we only prophesy in part. Matter of fact, we, we're in this position where everything is really hazy. It's like we're looking through a mirror very dimly because guess what? We don't see love in the fullness that we should see it at this point. Matter of fact, there's a verse in, in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, verse 7. In the same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying that you need the gifts of the Spirit until the Lord comes back. Amen. The gifts of the Spirit, miracles, the gifts of healings, the, 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 the prophetic words, and this is what he's talking about. He says, even though we prophesy, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect is come, that will be done away. Right now, we need healing. Right now, we need miracles. Right now, we need prophetic insights to be able to speak into people's lives. And even the gift of tongues is actually a sign that signifies that there are things that we are expressing in our current experience that we don't even fully understand because there's something out there that we cannot grab a hold of, and it's a mystery. And he's saying that that is signifying that right now the kingdom of God is breaking in among us. And when we see healing, when we see miracles, when we see prophetic words given, when we see God at work in our midst, what is he doing? He's allowing the kingdom to break in to point us to the complete that is coming. And in other words, he's saying, guess what, guys? Where you're living right now, he said, you better get ready because you've got a very short time and then you will enter into eternity. And I'm coming and I'm restoring all things. I'm redeeming all things and I'm making all things new. New. And even the dead that have went on before you, I'm raising them up in newness of life and they will live again and they shall never die because they'll have a glorified body. And then you won't need healing because people won't get sick. Then you won't need miracles because everyone will be made whole. Then you won't need a pro prophetic word. Why? Because you will have complete knowledge. Man, that's good news right there. And he says, then all of these things will end. You won't need prophetic words anymore. You won't need healing anymore. You won't need miracles. And Lord, children, thank God we won't need tongues. That's caused us enough trouble down here on this world, ain't it? You speak in tongues, you're hell bound. I apologize. I apologize. I, I need... It's scriptural. It's biblical. See, that was rude, y'all. That wasn't out of love. That was out of irritability there. <laughs> oh, praise God. He says, when I was a child, look at this. Verse 11 and 12, he said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So he's saying this perfect thing. I don't know about you, but I've never seen the Bible face to face because it doesn't have a face. But Jesus Christ has a face. He says, now we see through a mirror dimly. We see love very dimly. I only, get a, I only get a glimpse of Jesus. When we meet together here on Sundays, when we open up the Word of God, guess what? You and I are only getting glimpses of Jesus. We're only getting glimpses. We're not getting the full. And he says, we're seeing through a mirror dimly. And honestly, it's a war on love because the end goal, what Jesus is and who he is and what he represents is love, period. And that's why he says, look, all of these things are going to end, but there's going to be one thing that never ends. And that one thing that never ends is love. Matter of fact, even faith will end because you won't need faith any longer. You'll see it. You'll see God. You'll be with God. You won't need hope any longer because you won't need an expectation of good things to come because the perfect will be here. The only thing that will remain, the only thing that will never end is love. And he's saying the point is, is that right now you're in a training ground. You are a child. He's not saying that you need to grow up and put away childish things now. No, he's saying that as long as we're on this earth, it's like we're a kindergarten class. And as long as we're on this earth, we are children in comparison to the adults we'll become when we see Jesus face to face in the end. He says now, he said, when I was a child, I, I spoke like a child. And right now we're speaking like children. Man, we're only seeing just in part. But he's saying all of these things are pointing to the day when we'll see very clearly and we will know even as we are fully known. And in that moment, all the wounds, all the scars, all the deceptions, all the lies that kept us back from understanding the love of God and the love that he's going to reveal throughout eternity. He says all those things are going to be removed in a moment of time and you will know even as you are fully known. And what you will see is that everything is about one thing and that's love. Now, with that in mind, and I'm going to close. You guys can come to the music. But with that in mind, if everything is about one thing and everything is about love, here's what you have to understand is that that, that, is going, that, that idea, that concept is going to radically change the way you think about everything, the way you think about your life. Because in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, I just want to paraphrase, but you can read these verses. And Paul basically is saying that there's going to come a day when everything that we've done is going to be tested by fire. He says, of the work that we do, whether it's wood or hay or stubble or precious stones or gold or silver, he says, everything we do is going to be put to the fire. And he says, to test it, to see what kind of a work that it was. And he says, some will be saved, but they'll just barely pass through the fire. And what Paul is saying is, you can speak in tongues. You can have the, 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 the gifts of miracles and the gifts of healings. You can do all of these things. But everything you do, if it is not done in love, it will burn up in the fire. Everything you do, all the doctrine that you believe and you preach and the orthodoxy that you present to people, all this, everything that you do, all your church attendance, everything you do, if it is not done in love, he says it's going to burn up in the fire. Doesn't mean that you're, doesn't mean you're not going to get to go into heaven. It just means when you go in, you ain't taking nothing with you. And here's the other thing is that in this earth, you can't take anything with you. Ultimately, the only thing you can take with you is the love that you received from God and the, the love that you allowed to flow through you to others. That's the only thing that you're going to be able to take. And, and, and here's the thing you've got to understand. Here's the image that I got. The image that I got is that, is that we really are kindergartners. We're just little kids running around trying to figure out what this love thing is all about, what Jesus is really all about. And I got this picture of a teacher that was with her little kindergarten children. And, and I don't know if you ever watch kids. Tanya's back here with kids all day, every day, and... And I'd imagine if you talk to her about it, 
that she would, you know, if you've got a room with 12 kids and you've got toys all over the place, man, they probably don't want to share, do they, Tanya? No, everything is mine. It's mine. I want it. That's mine, mine, mine. And see, that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that we live in when we're disconnected from the love of God. Everything is mine. I'm going after it. I'm trying to get mine. I insist on my own way. I demand my own way. And we're living this way. And, God, and, and I imagine this teacher going up to the child and saying, look, here's the thing. If you take that toy and you give it away, then tomorrow I'll bring you another toy and you can keep that same toy tomorrow and I'll give you more toys so that you can give more away. But if you decide to keep that toy, I'm going to take it from you. Now I got this picture in my mind of the kids saying, well, I don't know if I like that idea or not. You know what I'm talking about? This is how we are as, as adults. I don't know if I like that idea or not. But see, we're in a training ground. I want you to even consider this. God, Jesus actually says this. He says something crazy, but it's because we're kindergartners and we're in a training ground. He says, give and it shall be given to you. Shaking together, pressed down, running over, shall men give back unto you. And so these kids are thinking about that. They're thinking, all right, so if I give this toy, I'm actually going to get more toys. So they're not doing it out of the right motive yet, are they? And then even in tithes and offerings, God says things like, test me in this. You give to me, you can bring the tithe and I'll bring the storehouse. He says, see if I won't pour out a blessing on you. Because he's training us because we're still children. We don't think properly. So we start out and we say, man, I'm going to test him in that because I'm going to get more. And then the picture that I got in my mind is these kids start to do it because they're like, man, I want more toys. So I'm going to give that one away. And then they see the teacher, you know, and the teacher gives them more toys. And they give some more away and they get more toys. And then by the time they've graduated, their minds have changed a little bit because now they realize that they started getting toys and they started thinking to themselves, man, I actually get more joy when I see the smile on the other kid's face when I give them that toy. And all of a sudden, man, it's nothing for them because they realize that this is actually what life is about. I have more joy in giving the toy away than I do in keeping it they're saying man maybe this is what it's all about and then so at the end these children have amassed all of this wealth all of this wealth because they learned how to give they learned to be givers and then at the end they all come back up to the teacher and they got their sack full of toys and they say you know what we want to give this back to you because now we learn the lesson that it's really not about the toy that the joy comes in learning to live a life of giving learning to live a life of love and see love means that you give yourself away you give yourself away on a daily basis to those who need you are a gift of God and you have to learn to give yourself away in that sense that's what love is it's that life of learning to give that life of learning to love see we're y'all agree with me on this too I, I would believe that we really are just children when it comes to love amen and this is the one thing that God wants to teach us would you stand to your feet with me this morning bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. I just want to give people an opportunity to respond to the Lord. More than anything, I want you to realize this morning how loved by God you are. That He died for you on the cross for all of your sins. And even if you were the only person in the world, He said, you know what, I want to forgive that person and I want, I want them to come to me and I want them to experience my love. I want to set them free from sin. I want to give them new life. And if you've not committed your life to Jesus and you say, I would love to do that right now. I want to commit my life to Jesus. Just between you and I, and I'll check with you later, but just raise your hand right now. Lift it up. Lift it up and let me know. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to follow Him. 
rest of us, I want us to, to right now just consider. Again, it would be easy at this point to say, man, I, you guys need to become more loving. But I'm telling you, if you can get to the place as a Christian where you come before God the Father and you allow Him to love you and you sense that He rejoices over you with love. And here's the thing. I know that when you try to do that, everything in your mind is bringing up how many times you failed and brought up your bad attitude and brought up all these negative things about yourself because that's what we do as Christians. We beat ourselves up and we question all the time whether or not God loves and accepts us. And I'm always thinking He wants something more out of us. And He's saying, I don't want anything out of you except for you to let me, let, except for you to let me love you. And I promise you, when you start to let God love you, you will start to do things. Things will change. You will want to serve Him, not out of some compulsion, but because you love Him. And so, Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name. I pray right now in Jesus' name that You would break off every spirit of fear and every false image of who You are, God. And that every person in this building would just realize that first and foremost, God, You want them to know that they're Your beloved sons, Your beloved daughters, in whom You are well pleased. That's their identity. That's who they are. And I pray you pour that love into their lives and that, God, they would hear your voice speaking that over them, God, where you just smile at them and you say, look, he's not worried about what you've done or even what you'll do. He wants you to begin to flow out of that place where you receive his love and that love flows through you. So, Lord, make us reservoirs for your love. Help us to be loving people. Help us to not be the center, but let you be the center of all things, God, so that we don't insist on our own way, God, but that we are self-giving and self-sacrificial, that we're never rude, but we're considerate of all others, and that, Holy Spirit, you would lead us to lead others into that love that's in Christ. Father, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.